0: Mr. Baker now asked leave to present the officer who had just been designated to command the expeditionary forces going to France. The secretary left the room for an instant and returned accompanied by General Pershing. As I held his hand, Mr. Baker sketched for me his brilliant military services. I caught the words New Mexico, Dakota, Cuba, and Mexican frontier. What struck me immediately in the new commander in chief was the intelligence and energy stamped upon his countenance and expressed by his whole bearings. Turning to Mr. Baker, I said, He is a fine looking soldier. Joseph Joffre, Marshal, French Army, upon meeting General John J. Pershing in 1917. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 87, Blackjack, part 1. We have several admin notes this time, so let's get right to it. PayPal shout out to Martin. Thank you so much for your generous donation. It is greatly appreciated. I love the new word you created, man. Mrs. BFWWP liked it too. Patreon shout-out to our newest supporter of the show, Volker, from Germany. Vielen Dank, mein Herr. As patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released Patrons currently have access to an episode on the Battle for Feme and Femet in the summer of 1918, as well as four episodes on the Battle of Tannenberg. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com forward slash battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. We'll just do the Patreon pitch this time. Roger Stewart of Ypres Battlefield Tours, whom I mentioned when I got back from France this past summer, has a new book out, and you should know about it. Here's the publisher's description. Reclaiming the Salient Resurrecting the Great War Battlegrounds of Flanders Fields, tells the remarkable story of the Great War cleanup in the Ypres salient. Covering the early days after the war when official military teams were present salvaging whatever they could, and the years after their departure, the book gives an incredible insight into the first truly industrial worldwide conflict and the incredible amounts of raw materials and human lives it consumed in its wake. Covering two specific subjects, the recovery of ammunition and the recovery of human remains from the Great War in the Salient, the book takes the story of the clearing of the battlefields up to the present day. The Great War guns fell silent in the Ypres Salient well over 100 years ago, yet their impact is still evident. Each year the Belgian bomb disposal units recover an average of 250 tons of Great War munitions from the fields of Flanders. With the cooperation of the Belgian armed forces, reclaiming the salient is able to describe in-depth the discovery and destruction process of Great War munitions discovered in the Ypres salient. Unfortunately, munitions are not the only thing recovered on a regular basis. Each year, the farmer's plow or construction work will reveal the mortal remains of missing soldiers who have lain lost in the fields of Flanders since the end of the Great War with the cooperation of the MOD and CWGC. Reclaiming the salient details the recovery, potential identification, and reburial process of the remains of our fallen discovered in the Ypres salient today. If you are interested in Roger's new work, and of course I think you definitely should be, there is a link to the publisher's website in the show notes. Register to show your interest, and Helion and Company will tell you when it's coming out. It's slated for a spring 2023 release. I think Roger's latest work will add further depth to the story of the April salient, and I look forward to purchasing my copy. Speaking of books, You no doubt heard my latest little episode with Rob as we announced the release of the audiobook version of his book, Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. In the last narrative episode, when I gave an update on where the podcast is going and all that, I mentioned that I wasn't more productive on the podcast in 2020 and couldn't remember why. Well, now I do remember I spent much of 2020 recording Rob's book. It took us a bit of work to work out the last details and little taskings to wrap it all up, but now Finding the Lost Battalion is available in audiobook format through supporting cast and Spotify. The book is the definitive account of the American World War I epic of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Whittlesey and the 700 men surrounded with him and the Charlevoix Ravine for those fateful days in October 1918. The book is broken up by chapters in podcast format, and you will have almost 36 hours of listening time ahead of you. The audiobook can be gifted as well, and you can even set the delivery date, since, you know, Christmas is here. And the history enthusiast, or dad, or dad history enthusiast, in your life would be all over this. Links will be provided in the show notes. Hope you enjoy. With all that done, let's go ahead, let's get back to the Mirzargon front. During a trip to the front line in October of 1918, General John J. Pershing was observed by his aide-de-camp to put his hands to his face and say, in a moment of emotional exhaustion, "My God!" Sometimes I don't know if I can go on. As we have seen in the past few narrative episodes, the slaughter of American troops in the Meuse battlefields continued day after day as the doughboys worked to crack the German defenses there. In October, the Americans had renewed their attacks west of the Meuse after a brief pause and had then expanded operations to the east bank of the Meuse as well, both operations had ground the front line forward, but at heavy cost in lives and material. General Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Force, was deeply involved in the management of these operations. They were enough to test any man's mettle. But Pershing was also commander of the AEF as a whole. So he dealt with not only what the AEF First Army was doing in the Meuse, but what the AEF was doing all along and behind the Western Front. Beyond the AEF, he also had to deal with the Allied leadership and their views of the prosecution of the current Allied offensives. In particular, his relationship with the Allied Supreme Commander, French Marshal Ferdinand Foch, was a strained one. Both men actively disliked the other. This impossible amount of responsibility had finally become too much for the one man trying to juggle it all. So on October 12th, 1918, General Pershing announced that he would be transferring the leadership of the AEF First Army to Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett. As I said in the last episode, this decision wasn't an easy one for a man like Pershing. So let's take a look at the experiences that shaped the man who would become the commander-in-chief of the American Expeditionary Force in the First World War. John Joseph Pershing was born on September 13, 1860, in Laclede, Missouri. He would forever recall how in June of 1864, Confederate rebels raided his border state town during the American Civil War. Not yet four years old, he remembered how his father had aimed a shotgun at the men plundering his general store, and how his mother had pleaded with him to hold his fire. The Pershings were well off in those days, with John Sr. owning the store as well as several farms. The panic of 1873 wiped all that out, and John Sr. was forced to adapt and become a traveling salesman to make ends meet. John Jr. stayed home and worked those fields the family still owned, so hard work was something that circumstances instilled in the young Pershing at an early age and an impressionable one. John Jr. tilled the soil by day, but at night he hit the books hard to get his education. By 18, he was a teacher at the Prairie Mound School in Sheridan County, Missouri, with a long-term goal of getting into law school and becoming a lawyer. And that was how he entered the military at age 22. He took the West Point entrance exam on the idea that the military could give him a free ride to a law degree. His scores blew past the other applicants around him, and the course was set. John J. Pershing became a soldier. He took to military life well. He was elected class president at West Point in his first year and stayed there until he graduated. He was a stern disciplinarian who held himself to the same strict standards he set for the other students. He was known as a world-class terror to the underclassmen, engaging in all sorts of hazing that today would be an unspeakable no-go. He was also popular with the ladies. Pershing had smarts. He had looks, and he had ambition. Serving first as a second lieutenant in a cavalry unit in New Mexico, Pershing learned how to run field operations well away from his home fort as they chased Apache and Sioux Native Americans. He learned on the job how to care for his men, both physically but also emotionally. He took care of his men and when given a company of Native American scouts, he learned about them so he could better understand them. Pershing came to see these Native American men not as the savages they were portrayed as, but as human beings little different from himself. The United States Army sent Pershing from one duty station to another as it is wont to do, and so the young man had several postings and positions that helped further shape his career. Having worked with the Native American scouts in New Mexico, Pershing was well-prepared when he was assigned to the African American 10th Cavalry. His command of black troops was what earned him the derogatory nickname Nigger Jack from his students at West Point. As an instructor, he was apparently discipline incarnate, and even the devil himself would have had to stand at attention when Pershing walked by. Over time, though, the nickname became Blackjack. As the Blackjack was named for a club used by police officers at the time, Pershing enjoyed the nickname. It was tough and cool. Blackjack Pershing deployed to the Spanish-American War with the African-American 10th Cavalry as their regimental quartermaster, and he was happy to be rid of the teaching post at West Point. Unsurprisingly, he found his way into the front line and combat. The Spanish-American War taught Pershing the value of providing adequate supplies for his troops. War was more than just shooting at the enemy. His next post in the Philippines, as the young United States tried on the robes of imperialism, saw him having to apply a mix of skills. Dealing with the Moro insurgents there, Pershing had to be both a politician and a soldier. As military governor of Moro province, Pershing sought to understand the Muslim moral culture and beliefs, and he made headway against the insurgency using these soft power skills. When things got tough, however, then Captain Pershing would resolutely unleash violence against armed formations that targeted American forces. He gained incredible knowledge from his time in the Philippines. Captain Pershing became a national celebrity in American newspapers, and he returned to the U.S. as a rising star in the military. He was level-headed, extremely competent, and perhaps most important of all within the small world that the U.S. Army was at the time, he was apolitical. Pershing was also some six feet tall, ramrod straight, with sandy hair and a regulation mustache. He was fit and trim, he believed in soldiers being fit, and he backed up his words with action. He was a physically active guy. He had things going for him. The lucky streak continued in the world of romance as he met and fell in love with Helen Warren, the daughter of Wyoming Senator Francis Warren. John and Frankie, as Helen liked to be called, were married in what was the wedding of the year in 1905. Even then, President and Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt attended. The Pershings were a beaming couple, absolutely smitten with each other. President Roosevelt, and likely with a boost from Senator Warren, saw to it that Captain John J. Pershing was promoted to Brigadier General. For those of you who know the U.S. Army ranks of today, that's going from 03 to 07. It wasn't unheard of to leapfrog someone like that, over 800 some other officers, but it was rare. Now, Brigadier General Pershing came in for some resentment from those he had jumped over. But he also knew that haters were going to hate, and he had no time to worry about it. The army sent him off to observe the Russo-Japanese War, and then he returned by way of a long trip through Europe. Pershing was very much impressed by the Germans, whom he stopped to visit. Upon their return to the U.S., Pershing was stationed down in Texas near the Mexican border. With Mexico in the throes of its revolution, on which Mike Duncan has done a fantastic job in his Revolutions podcast, Frankie and their now four children, Helen, Anne, Warren, and Mary Margaret, stayed behind in San Francisco for a time. They lived in a house on Moraga Avenue on an army post called the Presidio. Cross-border violence had become an increasingly occurring event, but the Pershings did not need spillover violence for tragedy to strike them. From Andrew Carroll's book, My Fellow Soldiers, General John Pershing and the Americans Who Helped Win the Great War, quote, On the morning of August 27, 1915, A reporter named Norman Walker from the Associated Press called General Pershing's headquarters to confirm a story coming over the wires about a house fire at the Presidio that had broken out on August 26th, just before midnight. Certain that voice at the other end was Lieutenant James Collins, General Pershing's military aide, the reporter asked somewhat matter-of-factly if he could get a quote from Pershing's office about the incident. There was a pause, and then the voice demanded, What fire? What has happened? Suddenly, Walker realized that it wasn't Pershing's aide he was speaking to, but General Pershing himself. Caught off guard, Walker stumbled through the report as the general listened. Mrs. Pershing, 35, and their three daughters, were all killed when a fire swept through their house at the Presidio a few hours past midnight. Only six-year-old Warren survived. "'Oh, God! My God!' Pershing cried. "'Read that again!' Walker repeated the story. "'My God! My God!' Pershing kept saying, traumatized by the news." After Walker expressed his sympathies, Pershing said before hanging up, Thank you, Walker. It was very considerate of you to phone. End quote. Pershing was devastated. It was believed that a spark from a fireplace had landed on a just-lacquered wood floor, igniting the deadly blaze. Warren was just saved when others realized a huddling group outside the burning house was not Mrs. Pershing and her kids'. One can't even imagine what Pershing must have felt. Many said he never fully recovered. Pershing was so distraught and shattered that he did not have the heart to tell his only surviving child for months what had happened to his mother and siblings. Warren was put in the care of Pershing's sister after Frankie and the girls were buried. Pershing returned to his post in Texas. There, he threw himself into his work, no doubt from him wanting to bury the unfathomable pain he lived with. He soon had a new opportunity where he could place all of his focus. Pershing was selected to lead the U.S. government's punitive expedition into Mexico in March 1916. The purpose of the expedition was to bring Pancho Villa, a Mexican revolutionary whose soldiers had attacked New Mexico towns and murdered American citizens in their own streets. Villa and his brigands were to be hunted down and eliminated. And the Mexican government wasn't totally on board, but allowed it to happen. The punitive expedition has been covered by Mike Duncan in Season 9 of his Revolutions podcast, so that's all we'll really say about it here, other than it lasted nearly a year. In February 1917, Pershing and his troops withdrew back to the U.S., without having captured Pancho Villa. But he had learned how to manage thousands of highly mobile soldiers operating over large areas of unfriendly terrain. Pershing and the U.S. Army had gone into Mexico with 12,000 soldiers, but also with airplanes and automobiles. He and his officers had to work tirelessly on how to keep these thousands of men equipped Properly fed and supplied. They also had to handle delicate diplomatic situations as the forces of Mexican President Venustiano Carranza were itching to open fire on the Americans. Brigadier General Pershing and his men came back to an America that was rapidly changing. German unrestricted submarine warfare and the Zimmerman telegram steadily pulled the United States into the Great Conflagration in Europe. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson had won re-election on keeping the U.S. out of the war in 1916. Yet, on April 2nd, Wilson went to Congress to ask for a declaration of war against Imperial Germany. On April 6th, 1917, Congress declared war. The U.S. was now in the war, and it would need a commander to lead the currently non-existent American Expeditionary Force. John J. Pershing certainly had his eye on getting a command assignment that would take him overseas, but he was more thinking he would command an Army division he did send off letters to President Wilson and Secretary of War Newton Baker, stating he was ready to go and ready to command the nascent AEF. His father-in-law, still close with him and something of a political godfather to Pershing, reached out to him. In Pershing's own words from his memoir, My Experiences in the World War, quote, On May 3rd, 1917, Four weeks after the United States had declared war on Germany, I received the following telegram from my father-in-law, the late Senator F.E. Warren, in Washington. Wire me today, whether and how much you speak, read, and write French. End quote. Naturally, Pershing embellished some and said his French was parfait and that he knew beaucoup Francais. He arrived in Washington, D.C. a week later to learn he had been given command of a division. He was pleased with the assignment, even though the division did not yet exist, and he had a lot of work to do in assembling its units. As part of his trip to D.C., he had an appointment with Secretary of War Newton Baker. "'I was surprised to find him much younger and considerably smaller than I had expected,' Pershing wrote in his memoir. He looked actually diminutive as he sat behind his desk, doubled up in a rather large office chair, but when he spoke, my impression changed immediately. We talked of my recent experience in Mexico and of conditions on the border, which, fortunately, were quieter than they had been for several years.' He referred to my appointment and said that he had given the subject very careful thought and had made the choice solely upon my record. I expressed my appreciation of the honor, mentioned the responsibility of the position, and said that I hoped he would have no reason to regret his action. At this time, it was my understanding that I was to go over in command of a division, and as no such unit then existed in our army, it was urgent that it be organized as soon as practicable. As directed, I had already designated the infantry and artillery regiments to form the division, but details of interior organization, including the size of smaller units, their armament, the kind of auxiliary troops, and many such matters had not been determined. A day or two later, Pershing was called back to the secretary's office. A conversation had been going on between President Wilson and Secretary Baker, and it was a momentous one. Of course, it involved the AEF and who would command it in Europe. President Wilson and Secretary Baker didn't take long in selecting Pershing himself to command the AEF over other men like Major General Leonard Wood. Major General Wood was a potential political threat to Wilson, and Pershing was not. They didn't need another George McClellan on their hands, he being the Union general who had become a political rival to Lincoln during the Civil War. Blackjack was about as far from that as you could get. So there it was. John J. Pershing would command the American Expeditionary Force in Europe. It was the first time that the young United States had undertaken such a mission on such a massive scale, and Pershing had his work cut out for him. He would be the first one to do this. There was no precedent for what America was about to do with its military. Next episode, we look at Pershing and the formation of the AEF. For now, happy holidays, everyone. Hope you have a holiday where your loved ones are close. Questions, comments, or concerns? Please don't hesitate to contact me at VerdunPodcast at gmail.com. And get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War page on the Facebook Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.